Okay, so we are in the book of Romans. We are coming back to the passage that we left at last week, chapter 7, verses 13 through 20. And we were cover, we're going to cover the second portion of that, but we will read the whole passage. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 7, beginning in verse 13. The authoritative and infallible word of God reads as follows. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, soul under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Indeed, thank you. Lord Jesus, just as your disciples realize when they say to you, Lord, where else can we go? For you are the one with the words of eternal life. That is our cry to you this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit gives us the understanding from your word that we need today. And that your Holy Spirit also brings us conviction from that understanding. So that we are not hearers only, but doers of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the title for today's sermon is a continuation of last week, and it remains the same. Can the law deliver? We are referring to the law of God, specifically the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Can it deliver? Last time we covered verses 13 through 15. And the main point there was that the law is good indeed, as Paul expresses there. And that law, which is very good, exposes a lifelong battle with the Christian and sin. So can the law deliver? Can it deliver holiness? The answer we saw is no. Can knowing the law deliver the power to make us stop sinning? The answer is invariably no, it cannot. Interestingly, what the law does deliver is slap in the face is the heavy truth that the law demands holiness it demands perfection why cannot not do what the law requires of me in today's main point for this passage which is verses 16 through 20 we're going to focus today Paul's point here is as we will explore that a Christian will live a lifelong battle with sin 
because we live in a body of flesh. The redemption of our fleshly body has not occurred yet. The new heavens and the new earth is not here yet. It doesn't take long to look around or to look within to know that although we are in the here, in the now, in the kingdom of God that begins now, there's still something to come, the not yet. And we can see that very clearly in our own lives and in the world around us. Now, which Christian is at a different level of sanctification? However, all Christians should be moving in the same direction. Picture us, me having an older car. I don't have a new car. Some people are driving faster than me in the freeway. But we're all driving in the same direction. If there's somebody going the wrong way, then there's something majorly wrong. Different levels of sanctification within the maturity and the walk of every Christian. But we shall be moving in the same direction. So, the question comes up this morning, should Christians obey the law? Or is the law a thing of the past? Paul has just told us, if grace abounds, should we just go and sit in a way? He says, no, may it never be. God forbid. So Christians should obey the law. Not for justification, but out of gratitude, obedience, reverence towards God Almighty, who has by, by grace saved us so that we are no longer slaves to sin. So Christians should obey. And it is the words of Christ in Luke 6, 46 that say, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Are we called to obey then? Absolutely. The law is not done away with. As some have erroneously claimed. The law has not been done away with and we are commanded to obey. So much so, so important that we are warned throughout scripture. That we must be a changed people. That we must have fruit from the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Our obedience is so important that if there is no fruit in our lives. We are confronted with a warning in 2 Corinthians 13.5 which says. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. This is not Paul talking to unbelievers. So let us be absolutely clear as we explore the passage this morning. The passage we're facing here in Romans 7 is not an excuse for the Christian to be carnal. It is not a pass for the Christian to say, well... I'm just a fleshly Christian. No, that is not what it is. We cannot say, well, Paul sinned all the time. If he was fine for Paul, it's okay for me. And let us go on sinning that grace may abound. Paul has already said, God forbid, that may that never be. Rather, in this section, instead of it being an excuse for the Christian to sin... It is a cry of lament. And Paul is expressing his frustration and his grief that the closer he knows God, as Brother Johnny mentioned in the Sunday school, that as the closer Paul progressed in his sanctification, the more he discovered God's holiness 
And the greater he discovered his sinfulness. Remember when Peter realized who Jesus was when they were fishing. Peter's reaction was not, well, this guy really knows a thing or two about fishing. Let him come with us so we could fish more. Rather, the words of Peter were, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And it says, in that context, that when the disciples found out who Jesus was, while in a boat in the sea context, that they were terrified. They were scared to death, literally, when finding out who Jesus was. So when the Christian realizes how great and how holy King Jesus is, when we find out how great our master is, how holy he is, our sin should grieve us. Our disobedience should cause us to know that we are grieving the Holy Spirit. So a question today for me, a question for you is, do you grieve when you sin? Or are you excusing yourself from your sin? This very morning, this very past week, are you owning your sin? And are you crying out to God for forgiveness? Or are we pointing fingers? Well, it's my circumstance. You know, if you only understood how hard I have it, you would understand why I sin. Or, and if you only knew how much grief my wife or my husband gives me, then you would understand why I sin. No, my brothers and sisters, this is accountability to ourselves before God. So as we see that the law demands perfection that we cannot have, and that the closer we come to God, we realize that He is perfect and holy and good and just. We are encouraged to obey by the strengthening of God's Holy Spirit who has been given to every one of His children. We're going to see that in three points here. First, we're going to see the reality of sin in the life of a Christian. Secondly, we're going to see the flesh versus the spirit in a Christian. And thirdly, we're going to see the inability versus the ability of a Christian. Let us take a look at point number one, the reality of sin in the life of a Christian. We're going to look at verses 16 and 19 since they mirror the content of each other. It reads, Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, I, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So this speaks of a remnant of sin in the Christian a key component to understanding this remnant of sin is that a Christian realizes that the law of God is good. That is the first statement of Paul. He agrees that the law of God is good. That is the standard that we as Christians should go to. It is not, well, I'm doing better than my neighbor or I'm doing better than my brother and sister so-and-so. No. The standard here is that the law is good and that I'm falling way short. As we do so, 
we realize the converse that when we sin, we know that the law is good and we should not be doing it. And when we do obey the law, it is something from outside of us that strengthens us. And that is the Holy Spirit. That is God himself enabling us to do that. So that's the ability and the inability. But first, before we talk a little bit more about that, let me address something that actually Brother Johnny talked about at the Sunday school. There is this idea of Christian perfectionism, also known as sinless perfection. I believe this is a dangerous doctrine. Its basic claim is that a believer can be so inclined to be diligent to love God and to follow God. So far we're good. But yes, follow God, love God, love His law. That it is possible to accomplish being sinless on this side of heaven. That's where the danger part is. So can a Christian say that not only are his or her actions pure all the time, but also his and her thoughts are pure all the time and only honor God? Can somebody say they never lust, they never covet, they never complain against God's will, they never speak ill of another, etc.? What I would say to that idea, just as a non-believer who claimed that they are a good person, so also is the believer in error that thinks that he or she no longer sins. Both are in error. And depending on the degree of the professing believer, it could be likely, not for sure, but it could be likely, the times that I've encountered such folks, that they're either self-deceived about their salvation, they profess it, but they're actually not saved because they are working out their salvation to be justified, not to obey, but to be justified. Or they have an inaccurate understanding of the gospel altogether. That is not to say that there are brothers and sisters who perhaps may believe this, and sure, in spite of that, God has saved them. But it is still an error. Some scripture references used, which are quite a bit, but we'll go to one passage that somebody that claims to be perfect, sinless, uh, sinless perfection in this lifetime, they use this. There's others, but we'll go, we'll go just to this passage. 1 John 3, verses 4 to 6, and then verse 9. It says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So this is a passage in which we could see that, okay, if I knew nothing else, the bar is pretty high for the believer. These verses, however, apply to a believer in the sense that we cannot make a practice of sin. A lifestyle of unrepentant sin cannot be your home as a Christian. You need to realize that when you are under sin, you are in the territory of an enemy that has taken you captive. Rather that you are 
nice, relaxed at home with your feet up enjoying it. Which one is it? A Christian then is not to abide in sin, though he or she may fall into sin. We see this earlier in that same letter in which the Apostle John says the following. 1 John 1.8 and 1 John 2.1 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John is including himself in that statement. And he says, if Christians say they have no sin, they are deceiving themselves. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Let me pause there. There's a commandment. Don't sin. Go and sin no more. Obey the commands of Christ. And then he continues, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is that advocate for? Is that advocate for the non-regenerate? Is that advocate for the non-believers? No, that advocate is for the believers. And John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. All this to say, Paul knows, Paul admits that he doesn't want to sin, that he hates sin. And yet he finds himself doing the very thing he hates. Now, how does Paul know that sin is evil and that the law is good? It's simple. Paul uses the scriptures as a standard. He doesn't go around with philosophy and debating with people of his times, though he did. But what was Paul's standard? His standard was scripture. And today, if you are a believer of Christ, that is and should be your same standard. The standard of the word of God. And that standard tells us that the law is good and that when we go contrary to the law, we are sinning. We are doing evil. So then we come to the next question. Then why does the Christian sin? And what Paul is telling us here is that he still has a body of flesh and bone when he's writing this passage. It is the reality of the fallenness of humanity that affects even the Christian, the fallenness of sin, the fallenness of this world. And therefore, in this fallen world, perfection is unattainable. If it wasn't so, this very passage that we're reading, we could have expected Paul to pause and say, well, but don't get me wrong, you guys are still expected not to sin. That doesn't make sense. So then why do even Christians are ensnared and fall into sin? Not making a practice of sin. Remember, not being friends and belonging to the house of sin. But we become captured and fall. Why? Romans 17, I mean Romans 7, verses 17 and 20, it says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then 20, it says, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So here's an inference to the fact that Paul knows from experience and from the revelation of the Holy Spirit that there is a separation between the old Paul 
and the new Paul. The old Paul was spiritually dead. The new Paul is spiritually alive. The old Paul thought that the things of Christ were foolishness. The new Paul knows that those are the very words that contain eternal life. The new Paul is spiritually alive. The old Paul is the remnant of the old man that creeps his head back up. That is the body of flesh and blood. And Paul says, I'm no longer that man, but yet there's a sin that dwells within me. John Gill describes the sense in which sin nature still remains in a believer, commenting on this very passage. I'll quote him here. He says, The old man, the carnal eye, the evil present within him, the law in his members, which not only existed in him and wrought him in, and that at times very strongly, but dwell in him, had its abode in him. As it is, has in all regenerate persons, and will have as long as they are in the body. Unquote. Then there is that old self that Paul is referring to. The part of the Christian that rebels against the things of the Spirit. The part of the Christian that when you have resolved yourself to have a time of prayer, to have a time of quietness before God, that the old man creeps in and says, you don't need to do that. The old self, the remnant that Paul knows is still there. That takes us to the second point. The flesh versus the spirit in the Christian. The flesh versus the spirit in a Christian. Verse 18, the first part of it says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. A lot can be said about that passage there. But we'll summarize with a few observations. First is this. The acknowledgement that Paul says, nothing good dwells in me, that statement is a spiritual statement. It comes from the mind of a regenerate person that nothing good dwells in them. Someone can make that truth because they are spiritually alive. In other words, those who are not born of God cannot do and cannot make this statement. As a matter of fact, an unregenerate person instead will say, I'm actually a pretty good person. I don't need none of that mumbo jumbo. Second observation about nothing good dwelling in him is a reminder of the concept of total depravity. Due to the fall of humanity, sin has affected the entirety of man. That is, there is not a portion of our being, of our heart and soul and body that is free from sin. Yet, because of God's common grace to the world and God's grace to the believer, 
we are not as wicked as we could be because God places a restraint on us. The truth of total depravity. Furthermore, this is a reference to the old self, the carnal self. And from that old self, there is no good that's come or that can come. That indication of nothing good dwelling in Paul has a very important qualification when he says that nothing good dwells in him. He says, that is in my flesh. In my flesh. That means that there is another part of him that is also at play. That is, the spirit of Almighty God that is at work within him. And in the first place makes him realize these spiritual truths. The non-believer then, in biblical terms, is nothing but flesh. The non-Christian has a soul, but they are spiritually dead. Whereas the believer that has been made alive by the Spirit of God can see these things and can know that they are at war with their flesh while in this earth. This is summarized very well in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. It reads as follows. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This passage then summarizes the fact that someone without Christ is dead. And only lives in sin. And only is ruled by the flesh and the desires of the carnal mind. Has no interest. Has no regard for the things of God. Which includes the confrontation that they are in sin. They're not interested in that. Whereas the believer that is made spiritually alive by God's grace. Understands these things now. And note... That that is possible only, only by the grace of God. It says, by grace you have been saved. While we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, enslaved only to sin, God was merciful to you. He made you be born again of the Holy Spirit, that you may be spiritually alive. This was not something you earned. And now that you have become born again, you still cannot earn God's favor. God loves you because he has saved you by grace. So then the believer is in a daily fight between the old carnal self and the new spiritual self. This is part of the Christian's sanctification. We were justified. We were made right before God. By grace through faith. At that moment, your sanctification begins. And 
In simple terms, that's basically your lifelong battle of whack-a-mole with sin for the rest of your life. Keep popping up. Gotta hit it. It's not gonna end. This part of the Christian's life, sanctification, does not mean that we live in unrepentant sin, but rather that we battle with it, even though we are prone to fail. And it is why the New Testament is filled with warnings to believers to beware of falling into sin and to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Because him who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Our third point here, the inability versus the ability of the Christian. What is that? Let's find out. The second part of verse 18 says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We'll cover this in this order. The ability of the Christian, the inability of the Christian, and then close with some good news, the ability of the Christian again. The good news is, because there is spiritual life, the Christian knows what is pleasing to God and desires to do what is pleasing to God. Speaking to the church at Corinth, who did not struggle with sin, oh, they, they were bad news, right? They were no different than Acts Reformed Church, all right? What did he say? 2 Corinthians 5.9, this is what Paul says. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Ephesians 5, 8 and 10 says this. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light. You are light in the world, rather. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So this is the ability of the Christian. Because you are spiritually alive if you are a Christian, you have the tools to discern what God requires. And when we are not walking according to God's commands, we know that we are in sin. And a Christian who remains in sin cannot and will not be content. So the good news is you have the ability to recognize, to know what God desires and that you are falling short. That's the good news. Now, some bad news. There is an inability that the Christian does not have. Paul says, while he has the desire to do it, right, spiritually good, that's good news, he has a desire, he does not have the ability to do it. This is with the understanding that Paul says that there's nothing good that dwells in his flesh. From that flesh... He does not have the ability to do what God requires of him, even while being born again. If one remains trying to take heed and trying to take strength from the flesh, you will not be able to do what God requires you to do. This is the reminder that unless God, through his Holy Spirit, enacts the strength in us to turn away sin, you are dead in the water. Cannot do it. The strength from the flesh, which Paul says there's nothing good in the flesh, which there's a remnant 
of that nature in us will not enable us to please God. This is where we are reminded that Paul himself tells us that this is a spiritual war. We cannot win a spiritual war with carnal weapons. That's the bad news. We cannot do it. Now here's another set of good news now, okay? Be encouraged. The good news is that while we are Christians, we have the spirit strength to turn down sin. So that although we may fall sometimes, that is not our home. Although we respond to the voice of the tyrant, evil master that sin is. And we may heed the voice and go serve it. That is not our home. That is not the default position of a Christian. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 reads as follows. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. There's no end to how we can sanctify our life to please God more and more. And the other observation we have there is that Christians are to encourage and Christians are to teach one another in the Lord, by the word of God, how to walk and how to please God. Is that easy to do? Is that easy to go to your brother and say, hey, brother, sister, you have to repent. As Christians, we are called, as Paul says there in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we urge you in the Lord to what? To walk in pleasing Him and to grow in doing so more and more. How many times have we needed a brother or a sister to tell us that? And yet, they didn't. That is an exhortation for all of us. It is possible to obey God and walk in His ways. And one of the mechanisms that God has put in place in His infinite wisdom is the church of God, us. The other observation there is that this sanctification, this exhortation to be more and more in our actions to please God is that it is gradual. Paul says that we ought to do that more and more. Now for some Christians, instead of moving in the right direction of sanctification, it seems that we want to press the brakes and put it reverse, right? Hopefully our brother or sister is right behind us and say, well, well, you're going the wrong way. Put it on drive. Let's go. I'll walk right along with you. Let's go. So knowing what we should do and not do it, let us remember that as Christians, we have the ability not to live in that state of always failing to do what we know God requires of us. Now, some signs that we want to go the other way, instead of wanting to be more and more in sanctification, growing in sanctification, pleasing what God, des in, in what God desires us to do. We know these things, right? What are some signs that we're not doing so? Well, 
We do the opposite. What is that? Fits of anger, lust, resentment, coveting, wasting our time in worthless pursuits, lack of forgiveness. I could keep going. Whatever it may be. If you are not carrying out what you know you should be doing in obedience to God, in your home, in your marriage, with your kids, at your workplace, wherever it is, in your private times, the Holy Spirit will not leave you alone. God will not withhold discipline from you if He loves you and you indeed are His child. My friends, if you have no consequence for your disobedience and your sin and your, repent and your lack of repentance and your anger and your lack of... If you have no consequence for that, you may have a bigger problem. And that is that perhaps you're not even regenerate. Are you concerned about that? Are you grieved by the fact that you disobey God? And that sometimes we'll feel no remorse for it. How can we do that? How can we do what pleases God? Philippians 2.13 reads as follows. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The things that please God, the things that are of God, the things that are honoring to God. We know what those are. At least we have an idea of what those are, depending on our walk. When we do those things to please God, it did not come from your flesh. You cannot take any credit for it. Paul tells us here in Philippians that it is God not only who gave you that understanding of what to do, but he also gives you the will to work that for his good pleasure. Oh, thanks be to God for that. That is good news. That we can ask God for repentance. That we can ask God for the strength to do what is pleasing to him. And to obey him. And to that, God will not turn you away. So what are some final thoughts and reflections from today's passage? First, know that you are not perfect. You are not perfect. As long as we live in this body of corruption that is wasting away, we will have sin in our lives. It's just a fact. The couple of questions for us in that regard are, are you at war with sin? Or are you and sin best friends? And secondly, right now, each of us has something that we have been disobedient with. Today, yesterday, this week. Are you humbling yourself to confess to God that you are in sin and that you need to repent? Or will you remain hardened in your sin? Which one is it? This is a war that Paul describes this is a cry, this is a lament that Paul is having. That he does not want to be there. Do I want to be there? Is my sorrow worldly sorrow? Because I may be ashamed externally or then people are not going to think that I'm as good as I looked. May we have godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That we are Christians that know we have a remnant of that flesh that dwells in us. 
and that we have fruit to show. And that primary fruit is repentance from sin. Secondly, you have the spiritual resources to obey God. Out of our own flesh, it will be impossible. What we need to obey God is spiritual endurance, spiritual strength. Those whom God has adopted as his children will have the ability to obey God. Though not perfectly, obedience to God will be our home. That should be our default. And when we fail, the last reminder I have for you is that you need a Savior and you have a Savior. The demands that the law has placed on you are high. As a matter of fact, they're unattainable. And we fall short. Can the law deliver? Not salvation. Cannot deliver the ability for me to obey it. And unless there is a mediator, unless there is an intercessor that can please God the Father perfectly, we are lost. Thanks be to God, He sent Jesus. The one who never uttered a word of dishonor. The one who never had a thought of impurity. As Peter tells us, the one who committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then he says that he, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That, my brothers and sisters, is the Savior that we need. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the Savior that we have that is not powerless. Are we powerless? Oh, yeah. Again, as we talked in Sunday school, if you think I'm a good person, talk to my wife. Right? Thanks be to God that we have a Savior. Lastly, from studying this passage, one of the commentators pointed this out. I had quoted from Psalm 119 earlier in the series when it talks about the law of God and the law of God being pleasing to us and us wanting to do the law of God. Well, King David in Psalm 119 expresses that in a tremendously insightful way being inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to summarize about 10 verses from Psalm 119 here in closing. And then I'll make a comment for it. Verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 7, I will keep my status, do not utterly forsake me. I will keep your statutes, do not utterly forsake me. Verse 10, With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 57, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Verse 93. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have given me life. Verse 102. I do not turn aside from your rules. For you have taught me. Verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 112. 
I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Verse 163, I hate and abhor falsehood for I love your law. Up to there, you're like, wow, I want to be like King David. What a man of God. What a man after God's own heart. Then you come to verse 176. And King David says the following. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. You see that? King David, a man after God's own heart, knew what was pleasing to God. He delighted in the law of God. He wanted to do what pleased God. It grieved him that others were not in line with God's word and law. Yet, just as Paul, David also acknowledged that he fell infinitely short of God's law. That he did not have what it took to deliver himself from sin. And this is why we learn and we know, we have this benefit to know that the saints in the Old Testament were justified just like Father Abraham was justified and just like you and I are justified. And everybody in between is justified the same way before God. And the scripture says, For Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. This is the righteousness that comes by faith. To those who believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the confrontation that we are sinful. That even as people of your kingdom, we are tempted and we fall in sin. May we remember your goodness. May we remember that, Lord, you are so good that you provided a way for us to be spared of the condemnation of sin. And may that truth Lord bring us. A hunger. To please you. A hunger to know you. And a humility. To submit to your law. So that we may obey your law. In gratitude. In reverence. In awe. Of what you have done for us. May you give us that conviction. And empower us by your Holy Spirit to apply this in our lives this very day. In Jesus' name, amen.